Welcome to Conway Hall, uh, and congratulations to all of you for braving the rain um, on this lovely June day in London. Um, really delighted to be here this evening with Jeff Sparrow, who's just written this excellent biography of Paul Robeson, which I've been really delighted to read. It's really good. And Paul Robeson is a hero of mine, so it's a real pleasure to be here to talk about the book. Um, if you like the sound of the book and if you like what you hear tonight, then uh, there are copies available over there that Jeff will sign for you. So please do check that out at the end. And even if you don't like it, still buy one. Yeah, basically. In fact, seal the exits. No one's leaving until they've bought a copy. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce Jeff Sparrow, who's a writer and broadcaster. He's contributed to The Guardian and he used to edit, am I right to say, yes. um, Overland, which is a literary magazine in Australia, and he's the author of this biography. So we're just going to jump in. I'm just going to have a few questions with Jeff, um, and then we'll throw it out to you guys to ask your own questions. Uh, so let's kick off. So welcome. Thank you. Um, so why did you pick Paul Robeson? Hmm. In the late 90s, I used to work in a trade union bookshop in... Melbourne, and we were perpetually on the verge of going broke, like every, every trade union bookshop everywhere. So we used to depend a lot on the sale of secondhand books, and they would often come from deceased estates. Very often it would be an old trade unionist, an old member of the Communist Party, someone who'd been an activist all their life would die, and their family, who often didn't share their politics, would just donate their entire library in total. And my job would often be to go around and to, to value these books and pack them up. And I just noticed that the Paul Robeson books just appeared over and over again, that these people, you know, in Australia, which is a long way from where Paul Robeson was born, um, these members of the old left who were often people who hadn't been to university, hadn't been to high school, had this incredible love of knowledge and this immense array of books and the centrepiece of them were always these collections of Paul Robeson books and as I was putting them away I began reading them and learning about the extent of Robeson's accomplishments that here is someone who's simultaneously one of the greatest singers of the 20th century, He's a Hollywood megastar, Shakespearean, an act, Shakespearean actor, one of the greatest football players in American history, a professional basketball player in Harlem, somebody who can sing in 23 different languages, a lawyer with a degree from Princeton, a prize-winning orator, and one of the most significant political activists um, in the 30s and the 40s, and I knew nothing about him. And so I became kind of fascinated, not only in Robeson's story, but what had happened so that this man who at one stage had been the most famous American alive was now almost totally unknown, certainly for people under, under the age of 40. So one of my preoccupations was to try and discover what had happened to the kind of legend of Paul Robeson, and that's very much what it was amongst those people whose books we were reading, what had happened to that legend and what the disappearance of it told us about history in general, but also the history of the left. And it was a very, obviously, uh, Paul Robeson's life was very sort of turbulent. He moved around, as you say, he did lots of different things. Um, and particularly in his early life, his life was very much characterized by slavery and racism. 
And in your book, you talk a lot about visiting these old places where he, um, where he grew up, and also visiting descendants of slave owners. Um, there are some quite shocking passages in the book about you talking with slave owners, and there seems to, well, not slave owners, descendants of slave owners. That would be some really old people. And, um, and they don't seem to have psychologically been able to come to terms with the legacy of their ancestors. And I was wondering, oh, you also talk about the sort of long-term impacts of slavery. I remember one astonishing statistic that stood out for me is that at the height of slavery, there were 900,000 black men who were enslaved in America. And yet now, in the present day, there are 1.7 million men, black men, incarcerated in America. Um, so I was just wondering what kind of impact those sort of discoveries had on you as you were researching the book? Yeah, so Paul Robeson's father was a slave. William Robeson was a slave in North Carolina and escaped during the Civil War. Uh, he's an amazing figure in his own right. I mean, slaves were forbidden to learn how to read or write, particularly after the Nat Turner insurrection. It was a crime punishable by jail if you, if you taught an enslaved person to read or write. So when William escaped, age 15, he, he was illiterate. By the end of his life, he had um, taken a degree in divinity, learnt ancient Greek, Assyrian, Latin, higher mathematics. This extraordinary list of accomplishments for someone who had begun life as somebody else's property. It's absolutely um, extraordinary. And... Um, Paul's story in some ways very much parallels his father's story. But my starting point with that is that Paul Robeson's father was a slave. Paul Robeson died in 1976. I'm sure there are probably people here in this room who were alive in 1976. And it's kind of striking to think that you're only one generation away from somebody who was in slavery. And so that... You know, liberals often talk about, well, slavery was a long time ago. Why does it still affect American society so much? It wasn't a long time ago. It was actually a remarkably recent um, historical trauma. And this is book, it's not merely a biography of Robeson. It's a book about following in Robeson's footsteps to talk about contemporary politics. And one of the preoccupations of it is this question of historical memory. And you can't travel throughout America, particularly the south of America, without being struck by how little America has actually come to terms with that legacy. You know, that um, you travel through the South and every town has a monument to um, the Civil War commemorating the South. You know, and it's like, if you're someone who's not from that culture, there's something incredibly shocking about seeing these monuments to slave owners in the centre of a of, of um, a contemporary town. So I was kind of fascinated by what the long-term historical consequences of that, that failure to come to terms with this massive historical trauma. And it's a question that's very much come to the, the forefront. I mean, when I was writing this book, it was sort of at the height, I guess, of the Black Lives Matter movement. And there was, I think, a renewed kind of interest in, in the historical legacy of that, 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 that racial trauma and what its consequences are for t today. And, I mean, those statistics about African-American incarceration are absolutely extraordinary. I mean, and it's not, you know, it's not a simple... I mean, the comparison between slavery and incarceration today 
you know, it's not a simple um, comparison, but the degree of police control over ordinary um, people of colour and non-people of colour in the United States is absolutely astonishing. And I've forgotten what the question was, sorry. <laughs> I um, actually was in some of the places that you mentioned in this book in North Carolina. I actually visited earlier in the year. I actually, um, for some reason, went to Donald Trump's inauguration. And um, it certainly wasn't out of support, I'll just be clear about that. And uh, although, weirdly, my mum, who always overestimates how successful I am, thought that I'd been invited to speak at his inauguration, which, I mean... <laughs> just got a few remarks. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was actually, I went to the New Museum of History in North Carolina, and you're right, there's Confederate flags everywhere, which I found, like, very shocking. I don't think it's necessarily an, a sort of um, hyperbolic thing to say that it, it was almost like going to Germany and seeing swastikas all over the... because of the extent of the crime of slavery. And, um, and in the Museum of North Carolina, there was a monument to a Confederate widow who was a, a woman who's a wife of a slave owner who'd like, lost all of their possessions once slavery had been abolished. And the, the purpose of the monument was to commemorate this poor widow who had been sort of done over by the abolition of slavery and it was really remarkable so I was wondering because um, obviously if you were a black writer you would you wouldn't need to learn as much em the empathy with with um, racism you would just have your own experience of it yourself and you talk in the book as well about being a white man and having to go to America and try to sort of learn empathy that you don't naturally have because of your experiences doesn't involve racism and so I was wondering if you learned any lessons from that and if you had any thoughts on that yeah I mean, I'm not sure that I'd put it necessarily in terms of empathy I mean we sound a little bit like a sociopath <laughs> but I'm an Australian and I'm a white Australian and Australia has its own traumatic racial past it's a story of it's a, a colonial settler state um, and it's a story of genocide or at least attempted genocide, I should say. Um, but that experience is a different one from the American experience. I mean, interestingly, when Robeson comes to Australia in 1960, he famously, well, he does two things. He um, meets with the, he, he gives the first ever concert at the Sydney Opera House, which he famously performs to the workers who are building it um, in this sort of great gesture to say that you people who will never be invited into this opera hall once it's actually created deserve all the culture that is being denied to you. But the other thing that he did was he demanded to meet with um, Indigenous leaders. And there's a famous meeting that takes place between Paul Robeson and Faith Bandler, who was, um, is a kind of iconic um, campaigner for Indigenous rights in Australia, where she plays Robeson some footage, some documentary footage, the conditions faced by Indigenous people in Australia. And at the end of that meeting, Robeson is in tears and he says to Bandler, look, I've got to finish this concert tour. Once it's over, I'm going to come back to Australia and help you in this fight for Indigenous rights. And Bandler always said that uh, uh, this seemed to be a completely um, sincere pledge and it never happened because immediately after that, Robeson's life um, collapsed. But it's, there's a kind of interesting parallel there that... Faith Bandler's um, father was also a slave. 
he was a slave who was, uh, the expression in Australia is blackbirded, was kidnapped from the um, from Pacific Islands and brought to, to, Queen, to Queensland, I think, to work in the sugar plantation. She'd grown up in um, New South Wales in a town that was delighted, divided along racial laws in a kind of Australian version of Jim Crow. And she'd grown up listening to, to African-American spirituals because they resonated with um, her life. So... Um, it's obviously not the same as the African-American experience, but I think one of the things that's really interesting about Robeson, Robeson was a global superstar. And he was a global superstar because um, his performances and his ideas resonated with people all around the world um, in very different ways, but um, they spoke to people about their own circumstances and listening to, to Bandler talk about what Paul Robeson had meant to her and how inspiring she found this single meeting. She, and in the interviews that she comes back to it again and again, this sort of high point of her life sitting and meeting with Paul Robeson. And that was one of the things I wanted to explore, how this 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 person who was born in very specific circumstances um, in um, Princeton and faced the very specific oppression that was um, inflicted on African-Americans became this kind of embodiment of the aspirations of the old left in a sense. So by the end of the 1940s, I think, um, there was a sense that for millions of people all over the world that Robeson kind of embodied the future that they thought was going to come. So they thought that after the Second World War, after the cataclysm, the defeat of fascism, there would arise a new social order in which everyone could be like Paul Robeson. Whether you were black, whether you were white, you would be able to develop all of your talents in the way that Paul Robeson had been able to develop him. And... Again and again, when you when you um, are reading people's accounts from that time, they talk about Robeson as being a visitor from a fu a visitor from the future, who sort of points the way to the future that we are going to make for ourselves. And that dream totally disappeared. But I, that was sort of one of the, my preoccupations in in the book is trying to kind of um, excavate this moment where. In, in a town like today, where maybe it's a little bit different in, in Britain after the recent election, but all over the world, people have almost no sense that another future is possible. You know, no sense that the future is going to be anything other than the same as today, except slightly worse. Whereas in the late 40s, there was a clear sense that another world was possible, and Paul Robeson was the embodiment of what that world was going to be. Well, you touched on the election there, um, on our election. Um, and I mean, I'm presuming that people who are coming to an uh, event about Paul Robeson might have a particular view on that election. Um, so I was wondering uh, if you could talk a bit more about the contemporary context of the book, because another thing about this book, actually, is that um, it's not a straightforward biography of Robeson's life. It's you telling your story of trying to investigate his life. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the kind of things that he did and, and how, how they are impacting on the world today. Yeah, so if, if you think of the main um, issues in Robeson, Robeson's life, like coming to terms with uh, the trauma of um, American slavery and its aftermath, battling against the rise of, um, of fascism and the far right, um, campaigning against the effects of... Um, of capitalism in crisis, trying to work out the relationship between politics and art. These are all eminently contemporary themes. I mean, these are issues that we are presented with in the 21st century and that we need to resolve if there is going to be 
um, any future. And I guess one of the things that struck me when I was working on this book was the extent to which the history of the 20th century, um, particularly the Cold War, but the 20th century as a whole, has been kind of buried everywhere. And it's a running theme throughout the book. I mean, I've already spoken about the effects of um, slavery and racism in the United States. So it's kind of like, it's everywhere in America, but it's hardly ever spoken about. Um, but it wasn't simply, that wasn't simply the experience in America. I mean, I spent some time travelling through Spain because the Spanish Civil War, the great sort of struggle against fascism in Spain, was a key moment in Robeson's life. And um, he helped organise for, well, he helped raise money for the International Brigades, the great anti-fascist army that went over to fight fascism in Spain. But he also went to Spain. Um, and when I was in Madrid, um, you can see in the outskirts of the town where the fascist trenches were when the, the town was surrounded. And um, when Robeson was there, the anti-fascists established a, um, a PA system so he could sing to their troops, but they also broadcast his voice into the fascist line. So his voice was being used as a weapon against fascism. But everywhere you go through Spain, the whole question of the Spanish Civil War is totally unresolved. You know, that you, you can see debris from the war. I mean, you know, you can walk across the battlefields and they're full of unexploded bombs and they're full of human corpses. And there's no resolution of any of the issues that, that happened in the Spanish Civil War. And it's the same, um, you know, I travelled to Moscow because the Soviet Union was tremendously important to Paul Robeson. It's the same thing there. The question of the legacy of the Soviet Union is totally unresolved in um, Russia today. In some ways, it, it, it's, you can't understand what's happening with Putin if you don't um, have an analysis of the Soviet Union. But there is n absolutely no clarity in that society as to what the Soviet Union was and what it meant. And so part of what I'm trying to say in this book is if we are going to make any kind of future, if we are going to build a different kind of society, we urgently need to excavate the past of the 20th century and come to terms with all of these issues that are kind of like these unhealed wounds from that time. What did fascism mean? What did communism mean? What is the legacy of, of racism? And what is the legacy of people like Paul Robeson? Um, we've touched on this briefly already, but um, I was interested if you could talk a bit more about why you decided to write it as a biography within a biography. So it is the story of Paul Robeson, but it's it's also the story of you learning about Paul Robeson. And so I was wondering why you chose to use that format as opposed to just writing a straightforward biography of his life. Okay, so Robeson has an extraordinary life and his life is so huge that it's very hard to fit it into um, a single narrative. But I guess the point that I wanted to stress was this is a man who wasn't just an interesting historical figure. This was a man who addressed issues that were of central importance to us today. So, um, I mean, I've, I've spoken about the um, the Spanish Civil War and Robeson's, you know, struggle uh, against um, fascism, but. Um, he came back to America during the Second World War and was hailed as an anti-fascist hero, was a, you know, the, one of the most popular public figures throughout the 1940s. And then after the 1940s comes the Cold War and Robeson becomes persona non grata. Um, the, the FBI begins to contact all of the concert halls in which he sings 
and tells them if they let Robeson sing, they'll, they'll be treated as communists themselves. All of the radio stations are told not to play Robeson's music. None of the um, theatres can show any of his films. And very quickly, um, it becomes, becomes almost impossible to hear or see Robeson in America during that decade. At the same time, the State Department takes away um, his passport so he can't travel anywhere um, around the world. So he's essentially silenced um, during that period. Well, that history of the Cold War, I think, has been largely forgotten. Or, if not forgotten, it's been written about in a way that because the Soviet Union was a dictatorship and because we all know the crimes of the Stalinist regime, and I'm not trying to diminish for a moment um, the, the importance of those crimes or their, significant, their significance, but because of that, we aren't told anything and we don't remember anything about the intense repression that was visited on, the, um, in, on America within, um, during the Cold War and the intense effort to destroy anyone who spoke up against racism or um, spoke up in the name of trade union rights or any of the other things that Robeson was fighting for in those times. I mean, we know the story of Martin Luther King and we know, you know, um, the, the civil rights movement. But how many people know that Robeson was engaged in boycotts of segregated um, venues in the 1940s? And, you know, people at the time are talking about him as a sort of pied piper of anti-segregation. I mean, he would have written into his contract that um, if he was performing and he saw a segregated audience, he would walk off stage. And because he was so so tremendously popular and influential, by doing that, he could destroy segregation in that particular venue, and that example would spread throughout the United States. Um, you know, I mean, when he was playing Othello in America in the 1940s, um, he insisted that all the venues um, were integrated, and the descriptions of those performances, those performances, you hear people saying again and again that, in fact, what was happening in the audiences were all these sort of hoity-toit white people were forced to sit in the same seats as these black audiences was far more interesting than what was happening on stage because they just had never experienced anything like that. But that struggle has been totally wiped out of the history books. Um, and again, I think that if we want to do anything to improve the world today, you can't, you can't erase history. You can't just pretend that these things don't matter and that, there's no, that, that there are no lessons to be drawn from them. Um, I'm going to throw it out to the audience in a minute, but my last question is a very selfish one. Um, the reason I was asked to uh, interview you is because I'm Welsh and I'm a Welsh socialist. <laughs> and, um, well, you seem eminently suitable then. Yes. And um, I think it's really difficult to, to uh, over-emphasise over how loved Paul Robeson is in Wales, like not just by people on the left, like people love him to the extent that I didn't actually know until, this is embarrassing to admit, but I didn't actually know until about five, ten years ago that um, he wasn't Welsh. <laughs> I just assumed that he was Welsh because like, he was sort of, a, he's a national hero in Wales and I just, it didn't even occur to me that he wouldn't be Welsh because obviously he's Welsh. No, we couldn't love someone that much if they weren't Welsh. And um, that was how I learned about Old Man River, which was my mum used to 
get me to learn the words to that and that kind of thing. And, and in fact, I actually did some work today with S4C, which is the Welsh language TV channel. And I, they said, oh, what are you doing this evening? And I said, oh, I'm interviewing a guy about a biography of Paul Robeson. And they were like, we love Paul Robeson. He's just like, he's up there with Tom Jones in terms of our <laughs> national heroes. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about Paul Robeson's time in Wales. And um, I've always sort of wondered, you know, there's so many struggles in the world, why he picked the coal miners of Wales to, to support. Yeah, so the story goes that he's in London in the late... Um, 20s and he's off to um, do a matinee performance and he hears this beautiful singing coming from the street and he goes down to see what it is and of course it's a group of Welsh miners who have marched down to London, they've been locked out of the um, of one of the mines and they're, they're seeking um, relief, they're seeking funds for their families and Robeson comes down and joins them, he marches along with them, they're singing their songs, he starts singing his songs, he gives them an impromptu performance and then sends them back to Wales with um, money and supplies that they can feed all of their families and that's the beginning of this ongoing relationship that sees him coming back and forth doing benefits for the miners performing in there's not a, a town along the Rhonda Valley that he didn't perform in at, at one stage or another but anyone who's seen um, The Proud Valley which is one of his better films the central conceit of that movie is that um, there's a parallel between Robeson's experience as someone growing up in an um, in, a, in, a pressed, in an oppressed community in which um, the church is central and which music is central and the experience of the Welsh miners growing up in, you know, with the, the chapel and the beautiful Welsh hymns. And in the movie, you know, he, he forges these bonds with, with, with um, the Welsh miners on, on that basis. And I, I really do think it, it gives you a sense of the importance of Robson. If you think about how unlikely on paper it would seem that, that here is, you know, a man who grew up in segregated Princeton, you know, in the African-American church, would become a national hero in Wales. I mean, I, I know there are parts, you know, Cardiff has quite a multicultural history, but a lot of those um, mining towns were very white and their experiences in many ways quite different, and yet they were able to forge this kind of deep solidarity. And it was a solidarity that was reciprocated, of course, when Robeson was struggling to get his passport back in the 1950s. There was a campaign all around the world to let Paul Robeson sing because he, he, um, he couldn't travel outside America. And one facet of it was um, he gave a performance to... Um, the, the Steadford of the Welsh miners, where he sang to them across the telephone, um, across a, what I mean, a transcontinental telephone line, to accompany the Welsh miners as they were singing for their Steadford. And they put this event on as a gesture of solidarity with him against the American um, government, as a kind of reciprocal gesture for all the support he'd given them over the years. And again, it really is an extraordinary kind of gesture in a way that seems almost unthinkable in terms of contemporary politics, where those old-fashioned ideas of solidarity, that old-fashioned idea that our struggles have connections with each other and that if we stand together we can win things that benefit all of us, is so unfashionable today and yet these things happened, they were real and they made a massive Difference, and you can still, when when you go to Wales, you can still 
feel the effects of that. Everywhere I went when I was researching this book, I mean, I was telling you before we came on here, you would, when, you, when people heard that you were writing about ropes and they would usher in someone who would tell you about how when he was a little boy, he and his father had been walking along and his father had said, that man over there, that man's son, is the greatest man you will ever see. And they'd be pointing at Paul Robeson. And this, I don't know, I mean, I, I found it incredibly moving that, that, that this solidarity across such extraordinary bounds, you know, that um, people who the popular press were telling them that um, blacks were inferior and that, that you know, um, that they were white and there were no, that, you know, that we should be at loggerheads with each other and they were able to forge these extraordinary bonds. I, yeah, I still find it quite moving. And I have to say, hearing an Australian guy in London talk about the Eisteddfod as someone who, like, performed in Eisteddfods as a kid in Wales, Eisteddfodau, as we call them, um, yeah, all Welsh kids did. I had folk dancing, choir, you name it, I did it. It was, it was very surreal. It was, well, weirdly, it sort of had some kind of weird credence to it. It was sort of seen as cool to sort of folk dance in these like archaic costumes. Anyway, um, so on that note, um, thank you very much. And also, thank you so much. Your contributions were really great. I think it was a really, really interesting discussion. So thank you very, very much. And thank you to Jeff Sparrow. Thank you.